How are you doing this morning? You good? We're going to give back to God in just a moment. That's uh, just for us as a church family. If you're a guest, don't worry about it. Um, yeah, so Easter is coming. It's a big deal. We're excited about Easter. It's going to be great. And uh, that's why we invite so many people, because we think Easter, not Christmas, believe it or not, Christmas is great too, but Easter is really the important one. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, we have um, the opportunity to know our Creator and to be forgiven and reconciled. And, and uh, yeah, so we want to share that with as many people as we can. We think it's the most important thing ever. Uh, as a matter of fact, I would even go so far as to say, um, if we are not sharing God's love in that way, why are you here? Not here, but here on the earth. What's the point? See, the point of life is to be more like Jesus, so I guess you can still be coming, growing in character, but I'm not sure you can truly grow in character unless you're sharing God's love with other people. And so we are really uh, going after a little bit the last week and this week in this series about sharing your faith, and one of the ways you can do that is just invite somebody to Easter. That's an easy share. Uh, this week I uh, had, uh, I have a, you know the, when, a, when a rock comes off a truck and it hits your windshield, that little thing it makes there that makes you happy? Um, I had a couple of those, actually, and so we had the guy come out to fix them, and, and so he was going to do it here while I was at work, and, and Val met him there because I was running late after lunch, and, and she, my assistant, Val, and she, and she met him out there, and then I pull up and so meet him or whatever, and, and I said, oh, I'll just stay, and you go on inside, so she did, and then she comes back about 15 minutes later, I'm talking to this guy, nice guy, married, got a couple of kids, went in college, very proud of him, and so we're having a great conversation, and, and all of a sudden Val comes up, and she's got a stack of invitations to Easter, and she goes, oh, I think you wanted these, didn't you? And she kind of gives me that look, and I'm like... So I was smart enough not to say, no, I don't really want these, until I could figure out what she was doing. And she smiled, and, and she's kind of behind the eye going. <laughs> and I'm like, and then finally Don, I mean, she wanted me to invite him to Easter. And I'm thinking, Val, you have a voice. You can invite him to Easter. But so I did, I, I, I gave him the thing, invited him. Okay, great. He may or may not come. I hope he does. It'd be great. But you know, it's interesting. We talk about inviting people. Oftentimes we have kind of a drive-by thing in mind, right? Hey, come to Easter. And, and that might work. It might work occasionally. I, you, know, you know, maybe. I don't know. I hope he comes. But, but more often than not, in my experience and my observation, is that it's not usually a drive-by invitation that changes somebody's life. It's usually a relational environment in which we then leverage that relationship, risk it a little bit, and say, hey, this is something important to me. Would you be willing for me to share this with you? You can say no, but I just want you to know how important this is to me. See, it's in that relational environment that we actually are able to have a conversation that might bring change. And, and so we've been, we talked about that last week, and, and I want to give you some thoughts today. This series is about I am uh, the life of the party. Uh, if you see it in writing, it makes more sense. I and AM are all in caps. I am. Not you are, he is. Right? We begin to think that life is about us and the world revolves around us, but it doesn't. It revolves around our, our Savior. And um, so we decided we'd look at some times when Jesus is involved with a group of people, because he was always the center of attention in a group of people. And what did he do when he had that opportunity? And what, more importantly today maybe, what did the people in that group do when Jesus was doing what he did? And so uh, hopefully that'll get clear in the next few minutes. So I want to give you three of my, uh, my favorite life change conversion experiences in the New, in the New Testament, in, in the Gospels especially. And uh, one of them, the first one, our rooted group just studied, our rooted two. Uh, and then the second one, Cody talked about a few weeks ago. And so I don't have to go into the great detail about the stories, but I want you to take note in each of these stories about what the people, the other people in the story did. 
to contribute to the life change that happened or what the person who experienced life change did for other people around them. So um, let's begin. Uh, in Mark chapter 2, there is this story. It's a story of four guys and a roof party or a roof parting more accurately. And it's four guys, you remember the story, who have a friend who's, who's paralyzed, right? And they put, him on a, they put him on a stretcher, and they take him to Jesus, and Jesus is in this um, house teaching, and it is packed. It is jam-packed, and even to the point out the front door. And they can't get in, and so they take him around up onto the roof, and they lower him through the roof. Let me read it for you. It's found in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Let's go ahead and put that up real quick. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Go ahead. Uh, since they could not get to him, uh, to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. Let me just pause. Not a roof like this, a roof like this, okay? So in, in the Middle East, the roof went like this, no snow to be shed. And so it was flat like this. What they would do, they'd take sticks and reeds and whatever they could across, and they would pack it with mud and then try to seal it. And it was actually a living space up there. They would, they would dry their grain up there where it was safe, that kind of thing. So there was probably even stairs up there. And so the picture is that these guys are up on this, this space and it's probably not concrete, but it was pretty hard, and they're digging through it, and stuff's falling on the people below while Jesus is teaching, okay? And so they're making quite a ruckus, all right? So we go back to that passage. Uh, Since they could not get to uh, him, to Jesus, because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat when Jesus, uh, the man, uh, was lying. Uh, So here's what's interesting about this. As I picture this, I don't see them digging a big enough space to just drop them down flat, I see, you know what I'm saying? I'm a logistics guy a little bit. I'm thinking they had to kind of go, you know what I'm saying? And kind of into, I don't know if he went head first or feet first. Either way, it had to be a weird thing. People are going, what in the world is going on here? It was just a weird scene, right? It's just a kind of, what? So in verse five, we find a couple of really interesting things. Here we go. So when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now there's two really weird things in this passage. We tend to think of faith, religion, as an individual thing because we're an individualistic society. And yes, I do believe we each will stand on our own before God someday. But most of history, wasn't faith wasn't just an individual thing. As a matter of fact, when you read in the New Testament, sometimes entire households came to faith. Here is, here is my question. What if your faith could somehow change somebody's life or eternity. Here's the crazy thing. It says in that passage, when Jesus saw their faith, not his faith, not the the paralyzed man, their faith together. And I don't want to build a whole theology on this. We're not starting a new denomination or anything. But what if we begin to think in terms of what our faith could do? I live in College Park East. What if they could say, you know, their faith, all the seacoasters live in College Park East, their faith lowered the divorce rate in College Park East. That's kind of weird, kind of out of the blue. Is it? Is it? Do you think that in the early church in Jerusalem, do you think their faith made an impact on Jerusalem? Absolutely. What if they could say about our church, thousands of people that go to our church, their faith helped the homeless situation in that community. Their faith 
helps the troubled children in their community to finish high school, to find jobs. You see, I think there is a sense in which we don't understand what our faith can do. Their faith. I don't know if that reference of their faith is a reference to the four guys carrying him and he didn't want to come, but he couldn't avoid it. Or if he was talking about the four guys and the guy laying on the cot, I don't know who he was talking about, but somehow them, their faith, not his faith, their faith. I think it's a powerful thing when we can exercise our faith on behalf of someone else. You're going, I don't know if I believe that. In 1 Peter, uh, we're instructed that a wife who is married to an unbelieving husband, so they got married, the wife became a Christ follower, the husband is not, it says, if, according to Scripture, if he will stay with her, that she, her faith, can actually be the cause of him coming to faith. I want to suggest to you that as we live out our faith, it has impact on people. But here is the question. The question is, are we willing to inconvenience ourselves in order for our faith to impact others? These four guys didn't get up that morning going, let's go dig a hole in our neighbor's roof. Let's go make a, just, just a nuisance of ourselves by just messing up somebody else's house. No, but they loved their friend and they were willing to inconvenience themselves on behalf of their friend. The problem with us in America, okay, one of the problems with us in America is that we don't want to inconvenience ourselves for anything. We believe that the point of life is a pursuit of happiness, which by the way is unbiblical. But in reality, the way we live, it's a pursuit of convenience. Everything about us is aimed to be convenient. And yet relationship and helping someone's life be changed is always inconvenient. Are we willing to inconvenience ourselves, whatever it takes, on behalf of somebody else? That's a part of what we have to ask ourselves if we're truly going to do what God has called us to do. Now, by the way, the other interesting thing about that, that particular paragraph was, was surprising is he says to the man laying on the cot, paralyzed, your sins are forgiven. Now, I can guarantee you that the four friends and the guy laying on the cot did not break through the roof and bring him there so his sins could be forgiven. Why do I know that? Because the Jews understood that only God can forgive sins. And they didn't think Jesus was God. Nobody thought Jesus was God yet. As a matter of fact, that's what the people in the room got upset about. Who is this guy thinking he forgives sins? He's not God. Well, they were wrong. He was. And so here's what Jesus does, which is what Jesus always does, which is what Jesus will do if you'll inconvenience yourself on behalf of somebody else. He will go past the superficial, obvious issue, and he'll go to the deepest need first. He always goes to the deepest need. We're going we're to see that in each of the stories. He goes to the deepest need. This guy's deepest need wasn't to walk. He thought he needed to walk. We all think we need certain things, and then we get it, and six weeks later, we think we need something else. Right? Because this guy would walk until he died. But it wasn't what he needed. He needed something to last beyond that. And so what he did was he forgave his sins, which would last forever, which is what his real need was. Christ always went to the deepest need. One of the, th one of the things that I think will move us beyond convenience-oriented people <laughs> to becoming people who are willing to be inconvenienced on behalf of somebody else to understand what's really at stake in, in other people's deepest need. Deepest need is not their comfort or security. It's not even their physical healing or emotional healing, as much as that may be a part of it. The deepest need is forever, <laughs> and it's reconciling them to God.
so that they will spend eternity in heaven with God. That's the deepest need. That's what's at stake here. We need to understand what's at stake here. Now, if you don't believe that, uh, you don't believe the Bible, I would suggest you study it and decide if you believe uh, the Scripture or not. The Scripture indicates that the whole reason Christ came was to reconcile us to God so that we could be with Him forever. And that's what's at stake. Jesus went to the most important thing first. And then he said to the religious leaders and the, t- the, the doubters there, oh, by the way, I can read your minds. I know what's going on in your brain. Why are you thinking that? So just so you know that I can forgive sins, I'm going to heal him too. Get up, take him at, leave. And he did. And he did, the, he did the lesser need as well. But the more important thing first. You and I need to care about the most important thing first. And the lesser things as well. But the most important thing first. So here's what's happening. We're not just inviting, asking you to invite people to Easter so we can have big numbers. That's not the point. We're asking you to care about someone's eternal destiny. Well, that's heavy. Yes, exactly. That's why Good Friday is so important. That's why Easter is so wonderful. Because yes, it's very heavy. Or it's very celebratory, depending on which side of that you're on. And we want everybody to be on the celebration side. So the first thing is, are we willing to inconvenience ourselves uh, on behalf of others? What if your faith could change someone else's eternal destiny? So I saw this video this week. And it was really interesting. There's a guy named Tarek Black. He used to play for the Lakers, not plays for the Rockets. And a big dude, uh, you know, six, eight, six, nine, big, big guy. And, and, uh, and really, I always liked watching him play because he's a hardworking player and good work ethic. And, and, and I always like watching him play. So there's this video of him online. He's a Christian guy. And so there's this video of him online. And some friends were visiting him. And he was playing here in L.A. They're playing the Clippers. And it shows them. I, I, I assume it was after the game. And they're outside Staples Center. And they're filming for something. I don't know what it is. And, and they turn the cameras off. But then they turn back on. Because when they turn the cameras off, a homeless woman comes up to, to him and, and, and his group and asked for money. He said, no. And she said, well, that's okay, because what I really need is Jesus. And he is wearing a T-shirt that says, blessed. And she goes on to say, I have been diagnosed with ovarian cancer. My family's far away. And what I really need is prayer. And here's the, this video. Look it up. You can see it. This video is of this big basketball player standing next to her and, and her and his little entourage coming around this woman, all of them putting their hands on her, and he begins to pray. And it's not super demonstrative. He just begins to pray for her. He begins to pray that God would bring healing. He begins to pray that, that God would be with her. And he just does this sincere, heartfelt prayer. And I'm watching this, and I'm going, and, he, and it's right outside Staples Center, people walking by. And I'm just thinking, that is cool. And then afterwards, they, they take her to dinner with them. This homeless lady, they take to dinner with them, and you can tell they go through the restaurant, and it's in a private room, and she sits in this private room with them, and then finally, they tell her who he is. She has no idea who he is, and she's like, you're on the team? Oh, my goodness, I had no idea. She's freaking out, and, and the last story, the last scene, I don't know if there was something happened after that, but the last picture of this little video is her walking away with her hands full of takeout after dinner or leftovers, I don't know which it was, and waving and so thankful that he reached out. And I, you know, when I watched it, there was, and just like you're feeling right now, there's something inside me went, that's, yes, that's how we're supposed to be, isn't it? They didn't just care her phys- for her physical need. They also prayed and cared for her spiritual. I just thought, that's what, we, that's why we're here. That's why you still are breathing. Of course, I also had 
that other thing. Because, you know, remember, I am is the, is, the, is the life of the party. I am. But sometimes I think I am. And it, no sooner had I felt that good feeling and I was, I was just moved by it. And I thought, yeah, she probably didn't have cancer. I know, it's terrible, isn't it? Can you believe? I'm an awful person. I know, I know, I am. <laughs> and yet that's the battle within us, isn't it? There's this old us that kind of is cynical and sarcastic and doubting. And yet there's this person who's becoming more like Jesus and, and wants to care and wants to have compassion and wants to inconvenience ourselves. We have to choose. We need to choose this one. That one's always going to kind of rear its ugly head from time to time. But this is what we choose. We're becoming like Jesus. And so we have to inconvenience ourselves like the friends did. Who knows whose life could be changed? So the second, the second story is, is an interesting story as well. Because the first one is about in, like the four friends inconveniencing themselves. This one is probably my all-time favorite conversion story because it's, a, it's Jesus talking to a woman, which was not normal in that day. And he actually elevated women, and especially this woman. And, and it's found in John chapter 4. And you remember the story, Cody talked about it a few weeks ago. It's the woman at the well. Jesus comes by, and he starts talking to this woman while the disciples go get food. And it's some unusual things about this story, just to remind you. Um, the woman, not only is Jesus talking to a woman alone, which would not be a normal thing for a rabbi, the woman was a Samaritan, which would not at all be normal for any Jew. Samaritans were people who perverted the Jewish religion. They kind of had a syncretistic belief system, in which they'd taken some of Judaism, some pagans, some other stuff, and they just kind of made up their own deal. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? And so here is Jesus talking to this woman. And, and he asked for a drink of water. And who are you to ask me? You're a Jew talking to me. Why would you be talking to me? He says, well, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd be asking me for something. You'd be asking for living water. He says, what's living water? I don't get it. And he's trying to offer a spiritual uh, awakening uh, and, and, and belief in the true God. And so she kind of shines it on or whatever. And, uh, and then Jesus says, go, uh, or, uh, um, go and get your husband, which is not a, a terrible thing to say, by the way. He wasn't insulting her. For a man to be talking to a woman alone like that, out away from everybody, it would be an appropriate thing to say, go get your husband. That's not a weird thing. But it was a weird thing for her um, because she says, I haven't had, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You've had five. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. He goes, yeah, exactly. Uh, um, well, um, I can see you're a prophet. So let's talk about these things over here. So let's talk about theology. Let's talk about your worship versus mine. She's trying to get a fight going between him and the Samaritan beliefs because she didn't want to deal with what he just did. He just poked her in her very most vulnerable spot. So if I were to describe this woman, I, you know when you read scripture, sometimes you picture them? Like I picture Peter being kind of ugly and a little bit chunky and just loud. The Bible doesn't say that. I, just, I saw a fishmonger once in Jerusalem look just like that. And I'm pretty sure that's what Peter looked like. Because he couldn't run fast because he, he got the grave slower, right? So anyway, um, so, uh, so I picture this woman as kind of tough kind of on the exterior, kind of tough. By the way, she was, she was there getting water in the middle of the day, in the hottest part of the day, because the other women wouldn't let her go with them in the early morning when it was cool when all the other women went, because, well, she, she, they didn't trust her, and maybe for good reason, right? And so I see this woman is kind of gruff and kind of tough and kind of gritty and don't mess with me, because she had to be, right? That's the only way she could survive. She had to be kind of 
And here's what Jesus did. By the way, I've seen people like this so many times. I don't want God. I don't want anything to do with you religious type. And if I'll just hang out long enough, I'll usually be able to find my way in. And usually in the middle of all that harshness and that exterior shell is a soft, broken place where somebody wounded them deeply. This one's relational challenges. It's not the kind of life she wanted to live, whether it was her fault or somebody else's fault. There was a woundedness there. There was a brokenness there. And the reason she kept shooting out flares, hoping that he would shoot his missiles at silly little theological arguments or other issues, she kept doing that, trying to, trying to distract him. Oh, you're a Jew. Why are you talking to me? Oh, where are we going to worship? Eh, all this stuff. You read these stories, you'll see it. Because she was protecting this brokenness, this woundedness inside. She didn't want him to get at it. And yet Jesus always gets at the deeper need, doesn't he? Hmm. Here's what I want to focus on this, though. At the end of their interaction, here's what happens. In verse 28 of John chapter 4, he says, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see. By the way, there's the two words, come see. Because here is what's about to happen, and here's what changes people's lives. If you are willing, as in the first story, to inconvenience yourself on behalf of somebody else for their eternal destination, what do you have to offer them? Come see my story. That's what you have to offer. Not great theology. She, she wanted to argue theology. That wasn't what was going to change her life. It, Jesus went right to her story and changed her story. Look at this. Come see two words that you and I should practice a lot. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Now, this is crazy. She didn't say, come see a guy who gets all the theology, he's got it all figured out. Come see a man who talks to a Samaritan woman. Come see a guy who can read minds. Those would all be impressive things. What's the one thing that she told him? Come see a man who told me the very thing that I've been trying to hide all these years. The very sore spot of my life, the very weakness of my life that I've been trying to cover up. Come see a guy who told me everything that I've done. And by implication, loved me anyway. She is saying, all this I've been hiding, all this, you come see the man who exposed all that and changed my life. What's the saying? You're only as sick as your secrets. She had no more secrets. He laid them all out there. And he loved her anyway. And he changed her. What do we have to offer? We're willing to inconvenience ourselves for others. What do we have to offer? Our story. Our before and after. That's what we have to offer. You see, more often than not, if you would invite somebody here, it's not my message. It's, I mean, it's going to be incredible, but it's Sonny's <laughs> sitting here in the, in the fourth row, and at the gym the other day, he comes up to me and he says, hey, I'm bringing people on Easter. You better bring your A game. You ought to pray for me. I'm worried. Sonny's bringing people. I, I'm gonna, I want to make this happen. It's not, it's not going to be my message. It's not even going to be the music. You know what it's going to be? It's probably a conversation with you afterwards. Why do we do all this silly stuff, suckers and, and gift cards and all that stuff? It's to give you an excuse to have an incredible conversation with somebody. It's not coming to church that's going to change your life. It's coming to church to open a conversation that you might get to have with them and say, here's who I used to be and here's who I'm becoming. Here's my story. Here's my before and after. They can argue theology all day long. I don't believe God exists. I'm like, yeah, okay, well, I'm sober. I've been sober 10 years now. It's all because of God. What, are they going to argue with that? 
Hey, my marriage was in trouble, but Jesus healed it, and now we're really tight. What are they going to do? Argue with that? I used to be selfish. I used to be driven. I was working myself to death, and now I know my life is about more than that. Is somebody going to argue with that? You see what happened is she went back to town, and she said, he told me everything I did. He told me, he told me, I've been trying to protect that and hide that. That's the thing I'm most embarrassed about. And yet he told me that, and now, and now I know that I'm loved. I can be forgiven. I can be reconciled. See, it's your story. It's your story that matters. Here's what happened in verse 30. So they came out of the town and made their way toward him. And then in verse 31, or verse 40 rather. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. Now you think about this. A Jewish rabbi staying in a, a Samaritan village for two days? Mm. That's, that's, but Jesus loved them. And he wanted their stories, every one of their stories to change. And what opened the door for that? Her sharing her story of meeting Jesus. And, and then it goes on. And because of his words, many more became believers. And in verse 42, this is the part I love. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. So in other words, they first came to believe because of her story. They hadn't even met Jesus yet. And they were already starting to believe because her story was so powerful. And then it goes on. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Their story changed too because she was willing to share her story. See, that's critical. If we want to change our world, we need to change ourselves or let God change us and to be willing to share our story. It's a powerful thing. Well, <clears throat> let, me, uh, let me just give you a, a weird example or idea about this. So um, I have a little tub garden in my backyard for the grandkids. They pick tomatoes all summer and don't eat them, throw them and do stuff. But, um, but they love going out there and picking them. And I'm always late planting because I never know when I'm supposed to plant and I'm not paying attention. And so every year something happens before I get to planting. I look out and my, uh, my tub gardens are already alive on their own. Sometimes good, most of the time not so good. Uh, most of the time it's weeds. But, but this year I looked out and there's a, a little yellow daffodil that is, is coming. It's the first one. It's come up. It's beautiful. And then over here is, I think it's probably one of the cherry tomatoes from last year that got put back in the soil or something or fell or whatever it is. And then this other thing, I can't figure out what, what that is. Um, and, and usually a, a tomato plant or two will come up and, and maybe a pepper plant or whatever it is. And here's what's interesting. Like the daffodils, I know that that's from a bulb and I probably planted it in there sometime, but I can't remember when right? Uh, and and the, the tomatoes, I, I don't know when those seeds fell, but sometime they fell. Here is the thing about us as Christians. Uh, we don't always get to harvest everything that we plant, and we don't always know when what we plant is going to bloom or grow, and yet we're called to plant anyway. For most of us, sharing our faith, sharing our story is a scary thing. What if they say no? Let me relieve you of that worry. Most people are going to say no. Most people are going to say, no, I don't want to go to church. No, I don't want to hear your religion. No, I don't want to talk about this anymore. But it's okay because you're not called to convince them or to sell them or to argue them into the kingdom. You're called to plant a seed. Jesus said some seeds are going to fall on hard soil and not grow. Some are going to grow for a short time and the sun's going to burn up. Some won't grow, but some will. And like that yellow daffodil in my little tub garden, there are seeds that will sprout up at some point and you don't even know when you planted them. But I, I read the, the title of a chapter this week in a book, and I want to make sure I, I get it right. We are to be seed-sowing fools. <laughs> seeds of hope, seeds of healing, seeds of faith that we can plant. It's up to God to grow them. All we've got to do is put them out there. 
I can't tell you how many times I, I meet a young couple. They say, yeah, we used to go to that church when we were kids, and, and then we went to college, and we kind of forgot the God thing. because I do crazy. You know, I'm married now. I got little kids, man. I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm coming back. You see, there's seeds. I don't know how many people I can tell you that say, yeah, I went off and I did something stupid and I lost my marriage and I lost my business and I ended up in a bottle and, but then I remember you and I went to your church one time and I'm back and I, I need help. Seeds. I even met people who say, yeah, I made it big. I went big, man. It's, the business boomed. I made a lot of money. It was great. And I sat in my office one day, a beautiful corner CEO office, and it just felt empty. And I'm here trying to find some meaning. And I remember that conversation we had. Seeds. If you're willing to inconvenience yourself, share your story. God will grow the seeds if they're willing. At the right time, all you got to do is plant. That's what we're called to do is plant. Uh, the third story um, is about one of my favorite characters. And you sing about him when you're in, if you grow up in, in Sunday school, it's about Zacchaeus. And, uh, or as we say in the Midwest, Zacchaeus. And uh, Zacchaeus was a little guy. A little guy, and, and if you remember the story, Jesus was coming through his town. He couldn't see him, so he climbed up in a tree. He was a tax collector. Matter of fact, he wasn't just a tax collector. We found out last week tax collectors are bad guys, right? Uh, he was a chief tax collector, so he was like worse than the bad guys. He was the baddest bad guy because he cheated his own people and, and made a lot of money doing it. And so he had no conscience, and, uh, or evidently not. And, and here's what Jesus did. It's always funny. I love Jesus because he loves tax collectors and sinners. And he looks up and sees Zach. He's come down. We're going to your house for tea, which is what the song says. The Bible doesn't say tea. It says lunch. I don't know which it was. And he says, and so here's Jesus going to another tax collector sinner's house. And all the people know it's always oh, going to the sinner's house. Right? And he says, I'm going to your house. And so he goes to, to his house and something happens. And there are two kind of declarations made in this thing. So if we're willing to inconvenience ourselves and share our story, our story will only really make sense if it's backed up by our example, that we really are changed, that something is changing. By the way, we need to understand Luke's theology. Luke's theology says the way you use your money and your possessions will be a great indicator of the condition of your heart. I'll say that again. You don't want me to, but I will. The way you use your money and possessions is a great indicator of where your heart is in relationship with God. Okay, so here's what Zacchaeus says in, in, in verse 8 of Luke 19. He says this. He says, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord. Now, this is interesting, by the way. This is interesting. I, you got to sometimes stop and use your imagination. So they're sitting at lunch. Here's Jesus. Here's Zacchaeus, right? And all of a sudden, Zacchaeus, he stands up. Why does he stand up? Jesus is right there. Why don't you say, hey, Jesus, I, I just want to tell you this. No, because I believe Zacchaeus was not just telling Jesus. He was telling all the people around who were listening, all the people who had said Jesus was having lunch with a sinner, oh, who had been taught that the way to know God is through the rules, and that's why they didn't understand why Jesus was there, because he's breaking the rules. Do you follow me? I believe that Zacchaeus stood up so that he could say it to Jesus so that everybody else could hear, because he wanted to show them what Luke was trying to show us, that his life had really changed. Here's what I really believe happened with Zacchaeus. I believe he found a better deal. I believe he thought, you know, there's a reason the Bible mentions that he's short. There's implications for what we look like and how we are physically. I believe that he thought the way to get ahead in life was he might not be bigger, stronger, faster, but he would have more money, whatever it takes. That was the deal. And the problem is he got there. And then he saw Jesus and Jesus had something better than money. 
He had, matter of fact, he had something so wonderful, so powerful that he was ready to give up all the money for that thing. So let's go back and let's read that again. Let's read that in verse, uh, I think it was verse 8. Here we go. He says, look, uh, Lord. So he's saying, look, Lord. So he's saying, everybody here. Here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, which is like, yeah, you have. Everybody knows you have. He knows he has. If I have cheated anybody out of it, I will pay back four times the amount. I don't know how much money he was going to have left. He gave away half. Most of what he got was because he cheated people. He's basically giving away his fortune. Now remember, this is on the heels of the rich young ruler who wouldn't give up his stuff to follow Jesus. That's just earlier in the previous chapter. Do you remember that story? So now he's saying, listen, Jesus and everybody is listening. I have really changed. I have really changed. The other proclamation in that deal is in verse 10, where Jesus said, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That was Jesus' mission, and that is to be our mission. And the way we do that is to inconvenience ourselves, tell our story, and be an example of life change. That's what it means. If someone can look at you and say, you know what, you are much nicer and kinder than you used to be. You know what, you're not taking the shortcuts in business that were kind of iffy in the gray area before, uh, that you did before. You know what, actually, I can't believe you didn't react and get mad and go crazy over that thing. If we can actually live out our faith, People will take note of that. And whether they allow us to plant seed in their life or not, we'll have a better chance. And I think that's what these stories tell us. So as I was thinking about this, this talk, I, I was reminded of my wife's uh, grandfather and grandmother. They were farmers, live out in the country, the Bergens. Virgil and Ruth, they were wonderful people. Ruth was a saint. She prayed every day. She prayed for when we started this church. She would pray every day. You've heard me talk about her sitting out in the pasture on a stump so nobody would bother her, praying, talking to God a couple hours every morning, rain or shine. But the amazing thing about Ruth is that her husband, Virgil, although a good husband and a good father to my late father-in-law, was not a Christian. And as Ruth lived out her faith, she would even speak at little country churches in Oklahoma where she lived when their pastor was away or they didn't have a pastor. She would go and speak and fill in and he would faithfully drive her there and sit in the service and tell her she did a great job afterwards. But he was not a Christ follower for 40 years. Then one Sunday, just an average run-of-the-mill Sunday, at the end of the service, he got up and he walked on front and said, I'd like to be a Christian. And he prayed the prayer and committed his life to Christ. And they asked him that week, Virgil, why did you decide to be a Christian? Forty years. He said, I wanted to watch and make sure this thing was real. (laughs) And he was a great Christian. And he loved the Lord. And he loved his wife. And he loved his son and his grandkids. What if there's a Virgil in your life? I pray it doesn't take 40 years. But even if it does, it's worth it. What if there's a Virgil or two in your life watching you, waiting to be invited, just seeing if it's real? And what if this were the year that they made the decision? What if this invitation was the one? And what if you stepped into that opportunity and God changed their eternal destiny? Let me guarantee you that Virgil's funeral was very different because of that Sunday than it would have been otherwise. His legacy with his children, his son and his grandchildren 
is very different because of that Sunday. What if Ruth had said, oh, don't worry, I'll go by myself today. You never know what God's up to, but you want to be a part of it. Let's commit to being a part of it. Let's get outside our comfort zone. Let's share our story with someone. Let's invite someone to something that could change their eternal destiny, not to mention their family, their life, their hopes and dreams here. Let's be those kind of people because I'm pretty sure that's why we're still here. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that you have called us and given us opportunities to be your hands and feet, to be your light on this earth. Lord, I want to pray something just a little bit honorary right now. Lord, I'm going to pray that for, for us as a congregation, for me and for each of us, that you would put in front of us obvious, unmistakable opportunities to do something outside our comfort zone, to share our story, to invite someone to church this week. I want you, Lord God, to make it so obvious that we have to actually say no to you <laughs> this week. I want you to do that for us, Lord, so that we can experience the incredible joy, the incredible power that comes with just being obedient to you and planting seeds. Lord, I pray that that would happen this week. In Jesus' name, amen.